I don't know if you have gotten so used to devices like I have that sometimes with uh, books you start to, or pictures, anybody else do that? Try to pinch and zoom on like real things? Do you guys do that or is that, am I just crazy? Some of you got to be great. Yeah, just me? Oh, thanks, Brett. I appreciate you, brother. Well, that's what I do sometimes, but let's uh, zoom out uh, on existence, out, out, out further and further and further, where across the entirety of the universe, uh, there are scattered innumerable galaxies. Uh, In those galaxies, each one contains just an unimaginable number of of stars and circling some held in by the gravity of some of those stars are are planets. And in one galaxy across this expanse and one of those innumerable stars, there's, there's one planet. Uh, Earth. Uh, And then we can zoom in on, no, pinch back in, right? We zoom in on Earth and on this one planet among all these stars, among this galaxy, among all these other galaxies across this massive expanse. Just on this one planet, there's a book. And in that book, it's divided into parts. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. But in that book, two parts, the first part, the second part. And then in that first part, it's divided into three parts, we're on the Old Testament now. So uh, you have the three parts where the, the law or the teaching and the prophets and the writings and zooming in on that first part of that teaching or that law, there's, there are parts of that. And we can understand Deuteronomy as the, as the audience to whom it was written. And so then you've got Genesis through Numbers being a precursor of what happened before the story of Deuteronomy. And in the course of that, you have Genesis as a prologue to the leading you up to the story of the Deuteronomy generation's parents, so their ancestors. And then in Genesis, that's divided into two parts. I think I should be like over here at this point. Genesis is divided into two parts where we have what's sometimes called primeval history up to Genesis chapter, through Genesis chapter 11, and then the patriarchal history, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at the front of that, You have this first chapter, the introduction to the book of Genesis and even to that early history. And at the front of that, you have one verse at the head of scripture that if you look into the midst of it, having zoomed in on this one planet and this one book to this one sentence, when you look at it, it actually causes you to zoom back out and understand where everything across that entire universe has come from. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's an explanation for everything that exists. The book of Genesis composed by Moses, the same Moses that God would use to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt to the edge of the land of Canaan that he had promised to Abraham. Genesis is an amazing book. Genesis is a foundational book. It's fitting for it to be at the beginning of the Bible and not just because the word Genesis means beginnings, uh, but it's a fitting foundation for all of these things. And as Keith walked us through last week, the whole Bible is a story, a story of stories. And Genesis truly is not just like a philosophical or any type of like a textbook. It's a story. And it's a story that from the very outset is a story about God And it's a story about creation. It's a story about humanity, a story about sin, and a story about grace. And we meet all, we we come across all of those things up into chapter three before we even leave the garden. And then that story of these themes and really other themes, but probably all of those kind of encompass us from the beginning to the end. God acting in creation or a sinful humanity and extending grace to them. That really does get us from beginning to the end. I took my first stab this week at mapping out a preaching schedule. Someone had commented that I hadn't done that yet. He doesn't remember doing that, but I know that he did because I listened. But that was good. I needed that. So I took my first stab at at a draft, draft one of the schedule for our time in Genesis that takes us to the end of the year, next year, that is, (laughs) December 2024. And I think that was, uh, we'll we'll see. So you had better get used to hearing 
turn in your copy of God's word to the book of Genesis, as we are going to hear that a lot. But do turn in your copy of God's word to the book of Genesis, but we're not going to get very far today. then this is not why it goes through December of 2024, but we're not going to get far today because I want to focus first on a monumental truth that is assumed in what we read as the first four words of the Bible and later expounded on all the way to the end. Literally, from Genesis to Revelation, this truth undergirds all of scripture, and it's simply stated that God exists. And we're not going to, as the Bible doesn't go through uh, some helpful, some less than helpful of the evidences of God's existence, we're just going to take it as the scripture says, with as, as an assumption that is expounded on, and we're going to look through different parts of scripture to see this. And here's why. Like, because in Genesis 1.1, we read, in the beginning, God did something. But before we get into that, I wanted to focus on what about before the beginning? Because in the beginning, God did, but before the beginning, God was. The curtain is pulled up, well, created, I guess, but the, the curtain uh, is raised in Genesis chapter 1 with someone already there. Which begs the question, as you read any story, you know, characters have to be dropped in, and then you learn their backstory as the, the book continues. Well, Marley was dead to begin with. Well, who's Marley? How did he die? What? Is this about Marley? No? Okay. But you learn about it later on. And the same thing with this, the story of stories, where we are introduced to God, but then we meet him as it continues to unfold. Because this, not just Genesis, but the entire Bible is a a book, a story about God. God was, though, before the beginning. And as I said, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. So he is the author of the phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then everything that follows. And what's interesting is that same man who put pen to paper or uh, put stylus to papyrus. Also wrote Psalm 90. The same author. And listening to the opening lines of that psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Here it is. Before the mountains were brought forth. Or ever you had formed the earth of the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There's no way to read those lines written by the same author who wrote Genesis 1-1 and not see the connection between the two. Before the mountains, before the forming of the earth. In other words, before the beginning of creation, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Those are time-like words. From everlasting in the past to everlasting in the future, you are God. That reminds me of like a biographical write-up of someone. According to the Google search that I did, George Washington lived from 1732 to 1799. Well, what about God? Well, God exists from everlasting to everlasting. Much, much later than Genesis 1 or Psalm 90, the apostle John wrote these true words about God in Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, where he says this, I am the alpha and the omega, right? A and Z, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Or as we sang today, who Wert, I think we changed it to were and art and shalt be, ever, evermore shalt be, right? And holy, 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 quoting from this, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. Wherever you are in the Bible, wherever you are in the timeline of history, God is there and he was before then, And he will be after then. 
wherever you are in the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1 to the end of the book of Revelation, wherever you are in human history, that first day or the last day, God is there and he was before and he will be after. God exists always and forever. And I want to trace this idea out a little bit more throughout scripture. So I have, I have five points about God's existence that we'll look at this morning. First, God's existence is eternal. Measurements of, of time and distances and amounts are funny things. Uh, on both ends, uh, a lot or a little uh, of something can be very subjective. One minute can feel like a very long time at a stoplight, especially if you're in a rush. Oh, 60 seconds is an eternity. But if you only had the same 60 seconds to say goodbye to someone that you love, it would fly by. As younger kids learn about money, they might ask questions with wide eyes like, Mom, do we have $100? And they'd be astounded to hear that we have even more than that. Uh, the church building here is very close to our house, but it, it doesn't feel very close when I'm carrying a crock pot full of soup or if I have a toddler in each arm. It feels a lot farther away at that time. And I say all this because when we try to think of eternity, we try to think of what is eternal, our brains really only have a category for a really long time. Like, I think that's as far as we can get. Uh, but that's not the same thing. A really long time is not the definition of eternity. One author gave this illustration. If all the body of the earth and the sea were turned to sand and all the air up to the starry heaven were nothing but sand, and a little bird should come every thousand years and fetch away in her bill but the tenth part of a grain of all that heap of sand, what numberless years would be spent before that vast heap of sand would be fetched away? But that is a small amount of time in relationship to unending eternity. Now, John Newton put it well, right? In Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. As hard as eternity future is to think about. Have you ever tried to imagine that, right? With God forever and, and ever. And as far as you can think, you know, and that again, and that again, unending. And as hard as eternity future then is to think about or imagine, an even more difficult concept for our limited finite minds to understand is, is what we could call eternity past. When there was God and only God Always. Not just old. Always. God's existence is eternal. When, when we talk about God's eternal existence, in a sense, if we could try to simplify it, that's kind of an odd thing to try to do, but our brains, we have to. We can, it's been summarized in some kind of easy statements of that. Like God had no beginning. Not a beginning a long time ago, no beginning. And he will have no end. That's, that's probably the better definition of, a better def definition of eternity. No beginning and no end. No start and no finish. Nothing else and no one else created God. And God did not create himself. He simply exists. And he exists eternally. In addition to the passages like uh, Psalm 90 or Revelation 1, we could also look at what the prophet Isaiah says when he writes of this. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. The Lord is the everlasting God. That's what is necessary for him to be the creator of the ends of the earth. And in addition to this, 
God as the everlasting God, which, which Moses also writes Abraham having praised him for in the book of Genesis. Isaiah also wrote the following description of God that we could find in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, which that's the right reference and this is the wrong verse. I forgot to copy something over. I love this verse. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up. That reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6. But this statement, this phrase, this one is the one who inhabits eternity. Inhabits eternity. I I inhabit a, a house. God inhabits eternity. Whose name is is holy. When I try to picture that, inhabiting eternity, I like to remember that time, as we know it, is something that God created. Like there was a beginning that God brought into existence. While God is present in every place at every moment, he is not bound to the ticking of the clock and the passing of time like we are. We dwell in time, but God inhabits eternity. And if his relationship, so, so that's that third part that some people would say is that definition of eternity. No beginning and no end. And, and it's kind of, I, I thought that there was only one position on this, but like with everything, even among uh, good Christian theologians, it is not an agreement about whether God is entirely outside of time, ah, temporal, or if he's in time in some way. And so read the philosophy, theology for yourself if you want to. I thought I knew what I believed, and then I read more, and now I'm confused. But God must have a different relationship with time than we do. Whether he is properly to be spoken of as outside of time, he certainly, or, or uh, what, are, what are sequences of moments? What is past, present, and future to God? Is he entirely outside of all of it? You know, it's, it is hard to understand that because we can only think in sequence of events. And whatever we're talking about, we're trying to use terms that we can understand to explain something that we can't. So it always is going to fall short. But it must be, whatever the relationship that he has with time, it has to be different than our understanding and our relationship with time. Uh, if it was not, if God experienced time the same way that we did, if he, if he didn't have a different relationship with time, then, then how could he know the future perfectly like he does? How could he speak so confidently and truthfully about something that had not yet taken place. I mean, as early as the curses found in Genesis 3, maybe even earlier than that, we see God speaking about what will happen in the future. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That's not vague, right? We see that fulfilled in Jesus Christ a long time in the future from when that's spoken. We see about God speaking about the future and then we continue to see that throughout scripture all the way to the end of Revelation where the apostle John, 2,000 years ago in our past almost, seeing the consummation of God's eternal plan of redemption, he sees what God will do that has not yet happened. And he hears what God will speak, which he has not yet spoken. How is this possible? Only because God is eternal. He had no beginning. He will have no end. And the way that he experiences time is different from us. And I do think that there's that inhabiting eternity, speaking of like he, he, he's outside of time. Like he can imagine it. He, he can conceive of it as something that he's created. Is it, is it a sphere? Is it a line? I don't know. Probably neither. Dr. Who said it's a big ball of timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly stuff. I don't think that that's accurate either. God's existence, though, is eternal. And God's existence is also living. What is life? Kind of sounds like a question, like an existential question that you should ask when you're staring into a campfire late at night. What is life? Yeah. What is life? But I think we can't admit not all of existence could properly be described as a living existence. Like a rock exists, but it isn't alive. 
A tree exists and it is alive and so is a bear, but, a, but a, the, the type of life in a tree uh, and a bear are different things. And this is also true when you compare a bear and a human being. Uh, both are alive and there are similarities in the type of life that they have, but their lives aren't exactly the same. And I believe that a significant part of that and we can talk about that a little bit more as we get into Genesis, but a significant part of the difference between like a human being, you and a bear, is what we would call the spiritual nature of human life, or what we could sometimes speak of that spiritual nature as our souls. I do not believe that animals have eternal souls like every human being does. Well, dogs uh, do not go to heaven. Uh, they're not sinful, <laughs> and their redemption is not the same as our redemption. A bear has a physical nature, but I do not think that it has a spiritual nature If that's because that's a part of that uh, image bearing of God. But what about God? Well, sorry, so a bear, physical, but not spiritual in that same sense. And we as humans, we have a physical nature and a spiritual nature, body and soul. In death, right, the soul is separated from the body. And then in resurrection, uh, the body is r- resurrected and the body and soul are brought back together, glorified and and spending time into eternity. What about God? He certainly exists, but God's divine nature is not a physical nature. God does not have a body like a human being. He is eternally spirit, but that doesn't mean he isn't living. God is alive. He's not a rock that exists, but isn't alive. Listen to how the Bible speaks about God and about his life. Acts 14, Paul's confronting yet another city filled with idolatry and they want to worship Paul. And I think it was Barnabas with him at that point. And he says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, should turn from these idols and these statues and these myths. You should turn from that to a living God. A living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He is a living God. And then Jesus spoke of this as well. What about this life? What is it like? You tap forward, Aaron. God, the Father, has life in himself. God is alive his life isn't like your life. You were, you were given life, and eventually that life will be taken away. Animals are given life from the Lord, and then he takes it back. Psalm 104, and us too, right? From the dust, back to the dust. But God did not receive life that could then be taken away. God has life in and of himself. This is how he is the living God. Not just a God who is alive, but the God who is living. See, all these things are speaking in this kind of eternal present tense almost. Before you are, and you are, and you will be, right? Again, different relationship with time. God was neither non-existent nor dormant before he created all things. His existence is a living existence, and he is the living God who gives life to everything else that is living in creation. God's existence is also independent, eternal and living and independent, and take some time to define this. But independence, we talked about this a little bit in our training hour class as high schoolers today, Independence is such a hallmark of American life, right? right? Independence Day, yeah. Let's cook some meat and blow some stuff up. Ever since we declared independence from Great Britain, we, we have prided ourselves as a people on our independence, both as a nation and as individuals. But alas, we are delusional and thinking that we are independent beings. I I woke up this morning because someone else built a clock. And then someone else sold that clock to me. And that clock was powered by electricity, sold to me by a completely different group of people who are themselves distinct from the people who mined the coal that burns in that power plant. And we could continue that 
rabbit hole for a while. And after I woke up, being awake remained pleasant and possible because of coffee beans that were grown by someone else and roasted by someone else and sold to me by someone else. And then I ground it in a grinder I didn't invent and combined it with water that magically shows up into my house. I poured that cup, that coffee into a cup that I didn't form. I didn't build my house. I didn't sew my clothing. I didn't grow my own food. Even if you are a miner and a blacksmith and a farmer and you do everything yourself and you have that ranch that you were longing for, you didn't learn those skills on your own. And no one causes rain to fall. You don't. No one, no one can do that. No one can cause crops to grow. No one can cra- cause livestock to stay alive. You didn't give yourself life and you can barely keep yourself alive. Life sometimes just seems like our trip across the country in the national parks, just avoiding all of the various ways that you can die. We are utterly dependent creatures. We are dependent on each other, and we are dependent on God. But God is independent. As creator, he is distinct from his creation. He's not a part of it like we are. And he needs nothing from anyone else outside of himself. The unfathomable sea, no tributary can actually contribute anything to that. You know, that's that conception of like rivers, right? Could dry up or form or move. And then there's the, the, the sea. Like what, is it higher? Is it lower? Like, Can it run out of water? Like rivers dry up, but the ocean? That's just a small taste of the difference between creator, limitless, at least as far as we can understand it, and limited, dependent creation. God is independent. He needs nothing from anyone else outside of himself. Paul in Acts, again, we talked Acts 14. This is Acts 17 speaks of the independence of God. He's in a different city confronting a different group of idolaters, this time in Athens. And he says this, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, as he clearly has Genesis 1 in mind. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God isn't a God who has to take. You don't, you don't build a house for him because he needs a place to stay. He builds a house for you. You don't give him food. He's the one who gives you food. Not only does he give you food, he gives you life. He gives you breath. He gives you everything. He is dependent on you for nothing. You are dependent on him for everything. We could talk about this independence as this self-sufficiency. And again, the songs that we sang this morning, thank you, Robbie, for just piecing those things together, like communicated that so well. Like there is nothing that's ever happened that God was just kind of like, ah, I'm just missing out on this, so let me do something. We could throw in a number of these points. It was almost a six-point sermon that God's existence is Trinitarian, but I decided to not do that. But part of that, right, it was like, oh, God's lonely. God's not lonely. Oh, God needs someone to love. God had someone to love himself. Father, Son, and Spirit, they were satisfied. It wasn't out of a need because God is independent, not from himself, independent with himself, independent from anything and anyone else. And this is a category of God's existence. We see that so clearly in a distinction, the distance between God and us. And the psalmist praises God for this as well. In Psalm Psalm number 50, he says this, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. But then hear this kind of change, he says. He says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. I, th- I thought you wanted our sacrifices. Okay. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is mine already. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) 
For the world is mine. For the world and all its fullness are mine. And then you might be like, oh, so God does eat. He just doesn't have to ask us for it. He just goes and grabs his own cow. He says this, but, but do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? It's kind of like, do you think that these sacrifices are because I'm hungry or thirsty? Do you think I need you to build me a temple to dwell in? As if I don't, I didn't build my own temple. It's like, a matter of fact, your earth where you're building these temples, it's just the place where I rest my feet. Like the earth is the footstool of the Lord. He doesn't need anybody to build him anything. And he doesn't need snacks to be provided for him, right? He's not the one who takes. He's the God who gives. If he had a need and he doesn't, he has all resources to meet his own needs. Yet he actually has no needs. Independent. God is never tired from the work he does in maintaining the universe. So there's no, uh, the expenditure of energy somehow doesn't, it doesn't wear him out like it does us. So he doesn't need any fuel or food to replenish his energy. He's not hungry. He doesn't need food. He owns everything that he has made. So even if he did have a need, he has immediate access to all resources. God is independent from that which he has made. All resources and no needs, that is true independence. And it can only be applied to God. Do you hear that? All resources and no needs. Independence. You don't own any of your resources and you have need of everything. God versus us. God's existence is eternal and it's living and it's independent. It's also unchanging. Malachi 3 verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. I think I've mentioned before I make pizza for our family every week, every Friday night. I've done so for a few years now. And over the last few months, I've made some changes to my crust recipe uh, gotten good results. We, we shifted it to a sourdough recipe rather than using uh, the store-bought factory yeast. Uh, sourdough goes down a little easier. Uh, it doesn't sit in the stomach quite as heavy, so you can eat more pizza and not feel as sick. It's a good, good change. Every week, my family compliments the pizza. Often, they say it's the best that I've ever made because uh, they know that flattery will get you everywhere. And when I make pizza for company, some of you, they, they also say the pizza's really good. Matter of fact, I'm not sure I've ever gotten a bad review on my pizza. So what does that make me want to do? Change it. And tweak it. And improve it. Oh, okay, okay, maybe it's good. But, but is it great? Or, okay, maybe it's great, but, but could it be greater? Next week, and I think I'm exhausting Leanna. Yeah, 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 but, but the cheese ratio, but, yeah, but should it rise a little different? Well, I don't know that I like this aspect of the crust and probably rolls her eyes at me about that. My family enjoys the pizza, and that's it. They're just like, hey, pizza, great. Make more pizza. That's fine. They're, they're satisfied. I'm not satisfied. Ah, more, better, this. I'm not even sure what I'm chasing. Just like perpetually dissatisfied. Probably shows some psychological flaw that I have. Maybe I'm chasing like perfection, but what does that even mean? Like what is the perfect pizza? When we think of perfection, we might think of no mistakes. Like you've, you've improved everything to where it is just the exact ratio of the right types of cheese and uh, the crust that, that brown and cooked perfectly and that great balance of soft versus crunchy. But true perfection is not actually just an improvement to a lack of mistakes. It's actually shortchanging the definition of perfection. Perfection is an absolute completeness. Maybe, maybe you're too gluten-free and pizza is not a good illustration. Um, we watched the movie Groundhog Day this week. Family tradition on Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day, anybody else? Yes, good. Uh, in Groundhog Day, Bill's Mur Bill Murray is a jerk, right? He has to repeat the same day over and over again, perhaps forever. He doesn't know. There's no explanation given. He tries satisfying himself with sin, and that doesn't work. That's a good theological lesson there. He tries killing himself. That doesn't work. That's not a good theological lesson. He masters several skills. Maybe that's self-improvement. Maybe that was the case. No, he keeps waking up to the same day over and over, and eventually he begins helping people. And thinking of others instead of himself. And this wins the heart of the woman that he loves. And after a perfect day, 
rescuing all sorts of people in the town from all sorts of bad things. He wakes up on February 3rd instead of February 2nd. How nice. Is that what God is like? At one point, actually, the part of the movie I really don't like, like this little blasphemous insert, after showing off that, that he knows everything about everyone in the, in the diner, he says something like, well, maybe God has just been around long enough that he knows everything. Is that true? Is God, because, I mean, he's really old, right? No beginning. Maybe just over time, before time, he's just sort of worked out all the kinks in his character. Like sanded off the rough edges and kind of just figured everything out. Maybe his wisdom is, is gleaned from experience like our wisdom is. Maybe that's why he's, he's merciful. Is God wise and merciful and good because time has worn off his rough edges? Is, is he omniscient just because he's been around so long? No. That would not be perfection. God's perfection is an absolute completeness. In order for it to be absolute completeness, it has to be unchanging completeness. Perfection is not perfection if it hasn't always been perfection. If something that wasn't perfect became perfect, it could also become imperfect. That's how it's not complete perfection. But God is unchanging. In his existence, he always is the Lord who does not change. He is permanently and absolutely perfect and complete. Therefore, he cannot have been created for he would have had to become something which would mean less than perfection. God's unchangingness does not mean that God doesn't act or work or speak. We see throughout scripture him doing all of those things. But it does mean that he never gets better than he is because he has no need for improvement or possibility of improvement. And it also means that he never gets worse than he is because he has no possibility of fading, which reminds me of James. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Here again, we have not a God who takes, but a God who gives. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's existence is un changing. We see this in Psalm 102 as well, where the psalmist contrasts God with his creation. He says, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, right? Of old, you, you were there and then you did something. You brought creation into existence. The heavens are the work of your hands as well. They will perish. So they started and they will end, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same. Creation, like everything else of life, it comes and it goes and the constant is God in his eternal, living, independent, unchanging existence. Your years, he says, have no end. God's existence is also, finally, it is unique One of the great things to remember about, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in the weeks to come, but one of the great things to remember as you study like a Genesis or an Exodus or other parts of the of the of the Bible, really Old and New Testament, that like us, they were they were idolatrous peoples, they were a little bit more overt about it maybe than we are. And so they, the God's people were surrounded by idols, surrounded by false conceptions of gods. Really, where everywhere they looked, there were other gods. Oh, the ground that gives us crop, God. The, the water that feeds that, that's a God. The, the sky, that's a God. The sun, that's a God. The moon, that's a God. The king, that's a God. So you have all of these different gods that are happening. And so we see that very clearly in Egypt, right? We all know about all the different statues and all the different gods, Ra, the sun god, and all these other things, all these cities, all these temples, all these stuff, gods everywhere. And I'm sure that you've heard, right? The plagues are God just like crossing the gods off of the list. You're going to worship the Nile? It's not water anymore. It's blood. Worship frogs? I could send frogs and I can kill frogs. And you're just going to have piles of them everywhere. You're going to worship gnats? Gnats. You're going to worship crops? I'm going to kill your crops. You're going to worship cows? I'm going to kill your cows. You're going to worship Pharaoh? I'm going to kill his son. And in the midst of this, 
you see God speaking to Pharaoh through Moses. And this is even at the second of these plagues. And Pharaoh starts to relent. We know the stubbornness of his heart, the hardness of that. Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, well, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs will be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. I didn't say today. I don't know. And Moses said, well, be it as you say, so that you set the time, I'll pray to God about it, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Right? This didn't just like happen to come in and it's not just going to happen to leave. It's an act. It's an act of the God and there's no one like him. He continues to establish his uniqueness. God is unique in how he sends judgment. He's unique in how he hears intercession and he's unique in how he provides deliverance. He says this to his people as well. Deuteronomy chapter four highlights this. If you want to know what is the history of Exodus, if you want the cliff notes of like Exodus through Deuteronomy, read Deuteronomy 4, 32 to 39. Mark it. I'm just going to give you the summary and you can move on. But everything that God did for his people was for this end, that you might know that the Lord is God. And there is no other beside him. Burning bush, mountain, Red Sea, following the plagues, all of it, manna, quail, water, all of it, so that God could establish his uniqueness, that there is no other beside him. And then toward the end of that, he says the same thing again. Know therefore today, he says to his people, lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other, no other God, but the Lord. He is unique He's unique in how he interacts with his people. That's the point of this. Has any other God talked to his people? Has any other God drawn a people to himself like this? Like that God might sit and wait until people come to him, but, but the real God goes and gets his people. He's unique in all of these different elements. Unique in how he interacts with his people. They don't come to him seeking salvation. He comes to them providing salvation. God is not just unique in that he is different than other gods or even that he is better than the other gods. He is uniquely God. Isaiah 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. In all aspects of his existence, God is distinct from humans and animals, and he is also distinct from all other gods of all other religions. Truly, there is no one like God. Of him and him alone can it be said that, that he simply exists. Before the beginning, God exists, and his existence is eternal and living and independent and unchanging and unique, and, and much more can be said about all of these things. But what about, what about the response to it? Keith pointed us to last week, the Bible is one big story, unified whole, made up of many parts. And the Bible has not been given to us as, as a textbook the way that you would organize a textbook, a philosophical textbook, a theological textbook, a scientific or mathematical textbook, right? It's not organized that way because that's not its primary purpose to just kind of like detachedly teach a subject. It's given to us in stories and all of these things, all these different passages that we've talked through, the truth of who God is, is revealed to us as it was revealed to real people in the midst of real stories, in the midst of warnings and promises made to them, right? Because there's no book of the Bible that would just outline, hey, here are five things that you can know about God's existence, like I just did. Did I just twist what the Bible says? I hope not. But it's true from the outset in the very first chapter, where Genesis 1 is, is a story, an account of what had happened, an account that reveals who God is to us, and then it continues all the way to the end. And at each point in the story, the truths that God reveals about himself were designed to provoke a response from their original audience. 
And now you're the audience as well. Which means that these aspects of this, this unimaginable greatness of God are supposed to be pushing you to something. Like what? Well, in, in Psalm 90, the everlastingness of God leads Moses to ask, please teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Then he says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your service, servants and satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So God's eternal nature confronts us with the brevity of our lives. We're supposed to be thinking, God, from everlasting to everlasting, but me from 1984 to maybe 2023, I don't, I don't know, 24, 2084, I don't know. Oh, I'm different from God. I need wisdom from this. And then it creates a longing for us in his continued work. Oh, return and satisfy me, right? It creates a hunger for God. Knowing that he has no need brings us to him in worship. Isaiah 40, 28, the Lord is the everlasting God. Remember we talked about this. The everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Okay, that's about God. But you know why Isaiah wrote this passage? It was to provide comfort for God's people. The everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he, has, he doesn't get tired. He doesn't wear out. He gives power to the faint. He gives to him who has no might. He increases strength. Do you think you're going to last forever? You're not. God is. So be confronted in your arrogance. Be humbled for your need for God. Are you feeling tired though? Are you worn out? Not just you want to take a nap because I've been preaching for 55 minutes or so. Are you just tired in your soul? How am I going to make it another day, another week? How am I going to do these things? Well, the God who has no limits gives power to the weak. And he has all power from which to draw. And it doesn't even wear him out to give that strength to you. Isaiah 57, 15, the one who is high and lifted up, the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Do you know what he says? He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. And you're like, yep, I know. You're, you're there and I'm here. And also I dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirits of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. God, great, eternal, transcendent, and right here with you. Are you, are you great? And God resists you. Are you Nothing? Are you low? God gives grace to revive your spirit. There's confrontation and there's comfort. Acts 14 and 17, the greatness of God spoken to pagan peoples to confront them, to rebuke them in their useless worship of idols and then to give them hope of salvation through the one true and living God. Moses rebuked Pharaoh and spoke judgment over him, a warning of impending judgment from an eternal God who has always been here and is not going anywhere, the everlasting judge of the earth. Romans 1 speaks of the same thing. Other passages, the eternal greatness of God is provided as an encouraging motivation to his people to obey him. God, from everlasting to everlasting, the immortal one, the living God. And he's come to help. Don't, don't you want to serve him? That God? That God who, who isn't coming, who isn't bargaining with you. Well, if you sacrifice, then I, well, if you build me this temple, then I'll come and dwell. No, he just gives. He's gracious. And then we have the opportunity. It's like, don't, don't you want that relationship that he offers, right? The encouraging motivation. So today we've considered together the God who exists. So what is your response? Are you all listening? Said a lot. It's been two weeks since I've been in the pulpit, guys. Come on. Are you disinterested in the God who exists? Then be warned. Because that word also says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Are you afraid then? Good. <laughs> but don't stay there. 
in your fear, cry out to that God for mercy. Mercy which he freely provides to all who would trust in Jesus, his son. And then move from sin to fear to mercy to comfort. Comfort in the greatness of the God who is not against you, but is for you, eternally for you. And you can live in awe of his greatness and then live out your awe in reverence and obedience to him. And then, that's just now. And then the God who is to come, right? That knowledge can create a longing to see his greatness, to experience it yourself firsthand. See God in his greatness and live in hope of spending eternity with him. A God who is to come and we will be with him. And as a reminder, all of this is just introduction. First four words, book of Genesis. Uh, the Bible begins assuming the existence of one God and then first introduces him as creator. In the beginning, before the beginning, God was. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Lord, You are the everlasting God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We praise you in awe of how different from us as your creatures you are. Please produce praise in us for this. Amen. I'm going to come to the table. Uh, That same eternal God and person of Christ lived and died for us to be forgiven and rose from the dead. And then as we heard a few weeks ago from, from uh, Pastor Jared so well, talking about the table, right, this is just bread and it's just grape juice, but it is offered to you by our Lord Jesus Christ himself by his spirit. And so this is an act of, of worship and this is an act of faith and it is fellowship with each other and together fellowshipping with Jesus. So if you are a follower of Christ, then your Lord and Savior who died for your sins and rose again calls you to come, take and eat and be strengthened. God is independent. You are dependent for all things physical and spiritual. And here at the table is one of the ways that Christ meets the spiritual needs of his people.